Hello, welcome to the Reinforced Running Podcast. My name is Rich Ryan. I am your host. Today we have Taylor Cruz. He's coming back for the second time. The first time we talked a lot about mobility, longevity for endurance athletes. It was a great podcast. I'll link to that in the show notes below. Today we talk about something that is super interesting and really important as athletes and just people as a whole. And that's how to manage your nervous system and kind of learning different threats and how they kind of uh, stack on in your daily life, uh, not just on the exercise end. But Taylor is full of tremendous information. A lot of like light bulbs kind of like went off in my brain about how things kind of work, how pain kind of surfaces, how performance kind of is affected by all of these different factors. And he gives some really cool specific ways to train some different things like your balance and your vision and how that all kind of works and in the greater scheme of things. So we talk about that for the beginning half. We talk about a lot about the threats and everything. And then on the back half, we have some great conversations about like the, the global feeling of, of your body as an athlete and how to kind of arrange that to make sure that you continue to keep making gains. So this was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. I think you're going to really love it in, as well. So let's just get into it. Taylor Cruz. All right. Taylor Cruz is here. Taylor, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. Good to be on the show. So I just want to kind of catch everybody up a little bit. Uh, first came in contact with you through one of the top OCR uh, athletes in the sport. I know you're familiar with Johnny Lima and Ryan Kempson. You've yep. kind of helped them along the way. And I think that's kind of where I first came across you before we even had you on the podcast the first time. Right. And since then, I'd actually worked out, uh, reached out to do some work with you uh, one-on-one and had tremendous results. Just I nice. had a lot of pain that I needed to manage and you really kind of helped me navigate that um, and and helped me really do a lot more training than I had done in the past and have been getting good results from the physical aspect of that sense. But from the scope of what you do, I felt like you and I were just kind of scratching the surface of that. So in the previous podcast, you, you, we can, you can kind of go back as a listener, go back and listen to who you really are and as like in like your background and things like that and kind of get an idea of a little bit more of the mobility things and the pain management things um, when it comes to running an OCR in general. But today, I want to really kind of dive into something a little bit deeper and some of the things that you've been talking about when it comes to like your nervous system and how to to manage those things and really kind of how to be a little bit more deliberate around training for that. So I really just want to do a dive into that. So Okay. When you're when you're talking about training and like rehabbing your nervous system, yeah. like wh- what does that mean? And like, why is it important? Okay, so yeah, that's a great question because um, I I throw that terminology around so much. You know, we talk about the nervous system, and very rarely do we actually get kind of an idea or definition of what that really means. So um, I think what would be important for our listeners to hear first is. Maybe I can connect this to some terminology that they've they've heard in the past. Not everybody, but I'm always amazed to know how many people have heard it explained like this. So uh, when it comes to the nervous system, we're talking about your brain and we're talking about um, your nervous system. So they're, we're going to really look at them as two different things, but they're interacting constantly and um, the brain is really the governing system. And... So with, uh, with the nervous system, people have heard like we have a fight or flight part of our nervous system. Mm. 
and we have more of a rest digest part of our nervous system. And what this is really referring to is this push-pull system of our what's called our sympathetic tone and our parasympathetic tone. And so the parasympathetic part of our nervous system is the one um, that's referred to as the rest and digest. And the sympathetic is referred to as the fight or flight. So these two parts of our nervous system are in this kind of push-pull interaction constantly. And so we always hear that if we're too sympathetic, it means that we're too stressed out. And mm -hmm. if we're too parasympathetic, it means that we're really, really relaxed. And I think that when we talk about it, it's like the pendulum swings from one to the other. And we, we talk about like, oh, you don't want to be too stressed out because that means you're too sympathetic. You really want to downregulate and be parasympathetic. But the truth of the matter is neither one of those things is good or bad. It just is. So mm. you, you have to have elevated sympathetic tone if you want to do athletic things. You wouldn't want your body to stay in that parasympathetic kind of down-regulated state. So we actually want an elevation of our sympathetic tone of our nervous system when we're going to fight our battles and, you know, win our races and work out. And then there's an appropriate time when we then become under the dominance of our parasympathetic nervous system. We have that sort of down-regulation happen where now it's more about recovery, rest, and digesting our food. So push-pull all the time, interacting. One is not good or bad, it just is. And um, that's, uh, those, that's really the terminology that I think people are more familiar with with the, with the nervous system. And um, where it goes from there is really understanding how, how can we look, how can we simplify things to look at the nervous system and what it does. And so it kind of takes us into this lesson that I'm constantly teaching called Neuro, Neuro 101. And so here's, here's what our les listeners need to know about what the nervous system does for us. So um, the first thing that it does is it takes in information from the outside world. And so we're going to do that through our different senses. And we have lots of them. So um, people are more familiar with things like sight and sound and taste and touch. Those are all, those are all senses. And we have way more than just those familiar senses. And we're able to take in information from the outside world, whether it's through our visual system or whether or not we're hearing something, feeling something, whatever it may be. And that information then has to be processed and our brain has to interpret and decide what to do with it and what it means. So that's this whole like processing piece that happens at the brain-based level. Then finally, our brain's taking that information. When it decides what it means, it can then create an output. And the output that we're most commonly talking about is movement. So, and there's, there can be a variety of different outputs, but um, it's just important to understand that the nervous system takes in information from the outside world, decides what to do with it and what it means, and then we're able to come up with or create that output. Okay. Mm -hmm. And these all seem like things that are out of our control, more or less, right? It doesn't seem like it is something there in, in 
I mean, we have slight control because we have process, and I guess we have thought of it, but it seems so fast. And even when you're talking sure. about the the sympath- sympathetic versus parasympathetic, we're, it's never like we're consciously making the decision or trying to move between one or the other. And there's been some, you know, that's things that you do think hear about. You, you mentioned like down regulating and like right. if you're sympathetic fight or flight too much, it might hurt like your, your, your sleep or sure. it might hurt your, even like your ability to like lose fat, like whatever it is. Yep. Um, so it was what you're talking about here, like kind of learning how to, manipulate this more or less to lack of yeah, better terms yeah. or just like how to train it yeah so um you're exactly right rich so um what we're talking about in terms of this loop that i just described information comes in processing decision making and then an output um, a lot of this is happening at the reflexive level so it's not mm. it's not like we're super conscious of of all of this interaction we're not and we don't want to be if, if we were, it would be very distracting and hard to do anything. Mm-hmm. So, so it is definitely happening at, happening at the reflexive level. And when you consider that, what we do with training and exercise is mostly at the conscious level. So because if I want to, say, lift a weight, that is a voluntary movement. And my body is calling on different um, reflexive things to allow me to lift that weight. But what we're really trying to do here when we, when we talk about training our nervous system is understand inputs. And um, I, already, I already mentioned output, right? The output is the outcome of all of these reflexive processes from taking in information from the outside world. The inputs are the different types of information coming in. So that kind of brings us back to our senses. You know, feeling something is an input. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seeing something is an input. Listening to something is an input. When I'm running and my foot strikes the ground and I feel that, that is an input. Taste is an input, right? I could go on and on and on with this list. Those are the things that matter because the quality of the input is what eventually determines the quality of the output. So when we're training the nervous system, our ultimate goal is to first, we have to understand how we're going to create a variety of inputs based on the senses that we have. Then we start becoming more accurate at at using those senses. Right. Because imagine this. If I have had an injury, a pretty serious injury, there's going to be scarring. There's mm-hmm. going to be scar tissue, depending on what it was. Maybe I had surgery. So there's some scarring outcomes from the surgery. My input from that part of my body may no longer be as clear as it once was. Because I'm having problems with my proprioception. I'm having problems with my coordination now. Maybe I'm having problems with my strength now. Maybe I'm having some sensory disturbances so I don't feel things as well. That is going to create an input problem. Now the loop that I just described is being disrupted. And my brain's not getting as accurate information coming from that body part as it once was. And we always say with the nervous system, when things become uncertain, that's when our brain goes, whoa. I've got these different systems telling me information. 
and this system is giving me truthful information and this system is giving me truthful information but all of a sudden this one over here is different and if your brain starts to feel like that is uncertain threat levels go up and that's where stuff starts to go awry with the with the nervous system if we have an input problem that disturbs the loop that we talked about now we're going to get possibly a different output and the output doesn't have to just be movement it could be poor movement right that that injury i had in the past could result in a poor movement outcome but it also the output could also be pain mm. right so so the idea is if we're going to train the nervous system we have to understand these inputs we have to understand how to create a variety in our training so that we can target these inputs and teach our brain how to be more accurate in interpreting them if we can do that then the output is going to be better so help me understand a little bit in terms of like a practical sense like what that means like with your your brain taking on a bunch of inputs all at once and say i don't know you're lining up to do a barbell lift like a, a clean and jerk or something so like there's yeah. proprioceptive like like where your body is, the feeling of the bar, there could be a visual component of it, like making sure everything's lined up. And like, these are all good things that are inputted, but if like, is there like a loud bang happens and has some other type of input that is negative and it can kind of screw something up or yeah. am I on the right, the right you path You totally are, yeah, you totally are. And it, <laughs> it's, it's crazy because it can get pretty subtle like you just described. I mean, I see stuff like that all the time. So. When, I, when I'm working with clients and athletes, one of the things that I'm spending a lot of time doing at the beginning is running tests, doing different forms of assessments to see what their overall levels of threat are, right? I wanna know if, um, if things aren't working optimally because when there's underperforming systems, those things can come back to haunt us with movement. So, so yes, there's going to be information coming from all these different parts of our nervous system when we go to do something like a, a barbell lift, like you described. And um, actually, to be honest with you, that actually is a great segue into those that neural hierarchy that we've discussed in the past, where mm -hmm. we have these three levels of our, of our neurology that it's really important to understand them because we're getting information from those three systems all the time. Um, those three systems are the proprioceptive systems. We already even said that. Um, we've then got the vestibular system, and then we have the visual system. And it's a vast oversimplification, but these are the three primary systems that really matter the most. So um, if, if our listeners are unfamiliar with, uh, with those three things, the, the proprioceptive system is about body awareness, right? It's, it's how we understand where our body and our limbs are in space and we we take in information from the outside world to get that information so um you know that's feeling the ground with your feet right mm -hmm. that's uh that's your um your joints giving information sending information back to your brain about where you are in space that's proprioception your vestibular system it gets a little bit a little bit more complicated that is your onboard balance system mm -hmm. and uh and that's telling also telling your brain where you are in space it's doing it through some different reflexes that's uh it has to do with the inner ear we have sensors in our inner ear and they're um they are actually measuring accelerations in body movement and head and neck movements 
So when you go for a run and you're, you're oscillating up and down, your vestibular system is getting stimulated from that. And that stimulation is helping your brain understand uh, which way you're going and which way is up, essentially. It works like the instruments in the cockpit of an airplane, right? Pilots get, it, get feedback from instruments about where they are, where they're flying. And that's how our vestibular system works for us as well. Hmm. Um, our visual system, the, the big primary sort of uh, survival-based um, thing that our visual system does is it helps us keep our, um, our visual picture clear, but also kind of keeps our eyes on the horizon. And it does, it's a super deep, deep topic, the visual system, but that is, that is at its most basic form, that's why we want to think about it right now. So we have the proprioceptive system, the vestibular system, and the visual system. And these three systems are constantly interacting with one another. And you can think about them as three satellites that your brain has. Those, your brain's going to use those satellites to constantly relay information back so that our brain can decide how to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. That's really important for people to realize is that our brain isn't really concerned with our performance as number one. It doesn't really care how much right. weight's on the bar. It doesn't care how far you can run. It just cares whether or not you survive the attempt. And so the interaction of these three systems is going on all the time. And our brain is basically saying, talking to each one of these systems and saying, okay, visual system, what can you tell me about the environment? All right, vestibular system, what can you tell me about which way we're going and which way is up? All right, proprioceptive system, what can you tell me about movement, right? Is there, um, you know, what does the ground feel like? Where is my knee right now? Where is my elbow right now? Where is my trunk right now? And the idea is your, your brain is getting this information and it's deciding whether or not it trusts it. It's all based on trust. If your brain trusts the, the information coming in and it feels like it is accurate information, then you're probably gonna walk up to that barbell and lift a lot of weight. Mm. You're going to perform well because the information coming in is accurate, okay? But like you said, what if there's like a loud sound or something and a year ago you had a concussion and you're like, oh, I'm cool. No problems with my concussion. I got through that. I was a week in bed. It was miserable. And my neck hurt a little bit. But I'm good now. My performance is good. But you don't really realize that there may be some carryover. You might be experiencing some higher threat things that are happening to you at a more unconscious level. So let's say you became sound sensitive, which is actually a really common thing that happens to people after concussions. Hmm. And maybe you don't you said loud bang and that's totally um possible but maybe you don't it's not that you're so sound sensitive that you are disturbed by a loud bang but maybe it's just the constant noise in the background is driving you crazy and it never used to hmm. right all of a sudden you are your threat levels are going up and that can interfere with your performance because Sound, especially, has a huge influence on our neurology, specifically our muscle tone, our stabilization, all of these things that we need 
to make that lift, right? And this, and you could make that same argument or um, you know example for the other systems too. People can become visually sensitive in certain ways. I've I've had clients that become sensitive to a certain color. Hmm. A, color a certain color just sort of elevates their their threat levels and. Um, proprioceptively, you know, you can have issues too. Perhaps you're not getting as good of information from your spinal cord to your brain because maybe you had a whiplash injury that resulted in a concussion. These are all examples of how input issues can interfere with output after we've had an injury. And so that can alter things. And, and talking about trust, right? Like where, like what your brain can then trust to make sure that it's safe. Yeah. And ultimately then is it like, and I guess with an injury or some experience that kind of tilts it to elevate the threat level to maybe remind you that things are not safe, does it go the opposite way as well? Like, is it an adaptation that we create or is it like inherent in our biology? That's a great question because, um, it, I like the word adaptation. Um, we want it to be an adaptation. It doesn't always work that way. So to give you an idea, when, when we work with people and we, we take them through our process, um, and, and you did some of this with me, Rich, where the first thing I'm trying to do is discover all the information that I can on a person, their health history, how they want to use their body, what injuries have they had, all those things. And in the process of that and running some assessments, I'm trying to figure out like where is a person's level of threat right now? And when I say threat, that's, again, nervous system terminology that we use. And what I mean by that is um, threat is essentially the level of stress that your nervous system is perceiving when demands exceed not just your physical resilience, but also your physiological and emotional resilience. So this can happen on a number of different levels. So when, when the demand exceeds those things, that's when threat levels go up. When threat levels go up, we're going to see things like increased tension, um, increased pain, uh, decreases in performance, etc. Does that make sense for the threat piece? It does. Great. That's a huge, t a huge thing to understand. <clears throat> um, so what was, uh, you had, go back to your question and just refresh me on what, what you wanted to, uh, what you meant with your with the last oh, thing that you said. Yeah, just a matter of like how like m how to then train that adaptation. Yeah, you use the word adaptation and and so when we take people through that process, um we're identifying those threats and then we take the time and it could be 3 months, 6 months depending on where a person's at and we we use the tools that we have to start to um reduce their levels of threat. That's always like phase one. And then once we've accomplished that, we start um, thinking about reintroducing threats eventually. We call it threat inoculation. Hmm. So we identify threats. We then take the time to reduce those threats. And then eventually, as a person becomes healthier, we want to reintroduce those threats so that we can again build their resilience. And that's, that, that's why I liked how you used the word adaptation, because ultimately that's the goal that we have for any training process is we want to create an adaptation. But we can't assume 
that people have a perfect nervous system and that that loop of input decision-making output is working perfectly, there may be things that need some assistance. They need some training before we can expect that adaptation to take place. Otherwise, we're going to be giving people increased levels of threat when maybe we need to reduce that threat and go and fix some stuff first. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the inoculation piece is huge because what you, what you generally see when a person becomes healthy enough is their, their ability to take on those threats increases. And they're able to do more and they're able to handle more. So um, that's a really great thing to witness as a coach because it's like the end game. And it's uh, when people get to that phase, it's really fun because you can just throw so much at them. Huh, that's an interesting. I mean, it's, it's a great way just to you know rebuild from like a base phase, right? Like if someone's squat patterns are wrong and their squat is 185 right. pounds, strip off the weight, fix their mechanics, and their squat goes to 225 after the right. initial issue is kind of fixed. It's just Definitely. taken from a, a threat response as opposed to that. Yeah, um, and with the with the hierarchy, like the the neural hierarchy of these things, and and talking yep. about the visual and the vestibular and the proprioceptive things, when you're when you're looking at these pieces and trying to figure out where there might be threats there or where there might be like areas to help improve, are you looking at them at like? Are you breaking them into pieces and training them individually, or is it more globally how they correspond together? That's Um, a great question. Um, Both. And it really depends on the person and how they're responding. So it's very common to break them into pieces at first. So um, if, if we do some initial testing and we find that a person is needing some vision training or needing some vestibular training or um, needing some specific proprioceptive training, it's very common to focus on those things in a more isolated fashion at first. However, um, not everybody will, will start like that. So it comes back to the person and their current level of threat once again. So here's, here's an example of that. Some of the brain stuff that we do starts with um well i should say a lot of the brain stuff that we do has to do with training the visual system because the visual system has such a profound influence on our performance and in order for us to train the visual system we're basically working from the top down so we can take a top down approach where we really go after your brain right away and we're doing all this cool vision training and getting some changes and stuff or we can take a bottom-up approach where we might start with more proprioception. And so movement becomes the entry point rather than the vision training. And where you start with a person is really dependent on the individual and where their current level levels of threat are. So going back to like the concussion example, if somebody's had a concussion and you immediately start doing vision training with them, you start exercising their eyes, that can be really awful for them because you can become visually sensitive from a concussion And because vision training is so energy expensive, it can actually make them feel lousy, even though they might need that. But it might be too soon to do it, or Mm. their body might not be able to handle it in an isolated fashion. So those types of people, we would say, hey, let's not take the the top-down approach. Let's take the bottom-up approach 
because the further away we get with applying a stimulus to a person, the less powerful it is for the brain, in a sense. So if we start with your eyes, that's very close to your brain, and that is very powerful. Sometimes it's too powerful. So then we go, let's start with proprioception. Let's learn how to move your ankle correctly. Let's learn how to move your knee correctly. Let's start with those things because they're less threatening to a person. So it really depends on the individual. And it really, the only way to fully understand where you should begin is you have to actually assess it. Got it. And, and yeah. when we're talking about like the training of things, I do want to get some specific examples just because the things yeah. that you do, they are interesting. And just like from the outside looking in, it's like the things that you like might look weird. It doesn't look totally. like exact training, right? But yeah, but you, you, I want to move, maybe we can backtrack that because I want to move it forward because we're kind of talking about these threats. And it was really interesting when you mentioned visual training and then making someone feel lousy, right? Like making yeah. them feel like they're almost overtraining when typically, you know, as athletes, as endurance athletes, most of the time we end up feeling lousy. We're going to put it to um, the physical training too much or too hard, sure. right? Yep. But you have this this cool idea and this analogy that really rung home with me of the threat bucket and like how much kind of stress we can take on in the like global sense and yeah. that you know stress is stress and it fills up your bucket and it gets to a certain point and it dumps exactly. over. And it's not always like running miles or lifting weights. They can all kind of kind of stack on. So Definitely. and it was interesting just to hear about the visual part, you know, adding to that and feeling like you were overtraining because of like vision training is not something that I would even kind of consider. So like yeah. can you talk about that a little bit and like how the different stresses kind of like weigh on top and and what might happen when that gets too like full? Yeah. So um, going back to, you know, threat levels, remember that that threat is that that level of stress that our nervous system perceives when um, demands exceed our capabilities, they exceed our resilience. And so the the educational lesson that we're always talking about with that threat bucket goes like this. We basically we, we show people a bucket and the, the bucket is really supposed to represent you and your nervous system. And all day long, we have different threats coming into the bucket. And we're not just talking about the physical threats. We're talking about physiological threats. We're talking about emotional threats. Things mm -hmm. like um, movement problems are a big part of uh, the stressors that we get into that bucket. Balance problems, vision problems, poor breathing habits, whatever it may be. But we also have to consider some of those threats coming from things like our finances and work stress and you know are we getting adequate sleep and do we have any nutritional deficits and um, the stresses that we have uh, in relationships right all the things that we are encountering for stress as human beings go into this bucket and there's a cumulative buildup of threat and just like you were saying when that threat reaches a certain level there's an output so the output is most commonly pain, increased pain, decreased performance. So when you look at it like this, it's like, oh yeah, okay, this is a great way to think about our health and performance holistically. 
right? It's not just about what I'm doing physically. There's all these other things that I have to consider as um, stressors, as threat entering my bucket. And that stuff has to factor into my performance. So understanding that is huge because we're so, we have such a tendency to think that, to just kind of be um, hyper-focused on everything being physical. Mm-hmm. And it's just really not the case. And in your experience, and I'm sure it comes down to assessments and, and each person is a little bit different, but is there some, is there... Uh, a typical hierarchy in terms of what is most threatening? Like, have you found, like, are, is it generally, like, what's taken up the most space in these buckets? And, like, is, does your work stress cause more stress than the physical stress, or does it just depend? It does depend, but I can tell you, in thinking about the physical threats, um, the ones that generally in my experience anyway, take up the most space are threats coming from your vision and vestibular system. For sure. Yes. Um, And to give you an idea, so let's let's just talk a little bit deeper um, on the, go a little bit deeper on the vestibular system because that is just such a, such an important one. And I also have to give you some examples on how you can train these things. So let's not forget that. For sure. so with your vestibular system, I said, you know, when you go out for a run and you're on the trail and you're oscillating up and down and you're moving all over the place, you're jumping up, you're jumping down, you're landing, you're moving very dynamically and fast. It's your vestibular system that helps you understand where you are, what direction you're going, and which way is up. Because those sensors that are located in our inner ear are constantly getting feedback about that. Um, there's multiple different sensors in there, but just to give people an idea, um, the ones that are more commonly talked about are called the semicircular canals. And they are, um, these little, uh, organs that basically have fluid in them. And when we move quickly, that fluid is distorted. And when it moves, we have all these little hair like instruments inside those canals and those hairs bend. So think about that fluid as being like jello. And when you move quickly, that um, that movement causes the jello to move and bend those hair fibers. And those hair fibers get information and send it back to your brain. And that helps your brain understand how fast are you move, moving, which direction are you going, etc. Hmm. So it's a, and it's a very complicated system. It's a, that's a, a, a simplification that works for us to understand it. Got it. Yeah. And so, yeah. So when you're, when you're out running, that's, that's how you know where you are. A large part of it anyways. Yes. There's proprioceptive information coming in. That's huge. And yes, there's visual information coming in. That's huge. But, um, a lot of it's coming from, from your vestibular system. Okay. And then, and then you said the visual and the visual part makes sense as well, right? It's like you see things and you interpret it and that's probably, I guess it makes sense. Like we see threats or we see things, Right. on whatever social media that stress us out or readings things that just kind of that we need to kind of yeah interpret yeah. the most yeah hmm. so with with threat levels too like when your vestibular system the reason i said that the balance issues take up the most space in the threat bucket or at least that's a very common thing that i see it's because when your vestibular system is not functioning optimally 
it's very chaotic for your body because imagine huh. um, one of the things I haven't mentioned yet is that your your vestibular system one of its primary goals is to be able to keep your your eyes focused on whatever it is that you're looking at and also help you keep a clear picture when you're doing that so when you're out on the trail and you're running and you're looking at all the different things that you need to look at it's your vestibular system that's helping you keep that clear picture and stabilize your eyes so let's say that your vestibular system was not working optimally and you were having a difficult time stabilizing your eyes again this is happening at the unconscious level Mm -hmm. most of the time that is super chaotic for your nervous system because now remember it comes back to trust your brain's getting this information back from your vestibular system that it doesn't want to trust because the input is of low quality so then threat levels start to elevate and for that particular person that's the person who says i don't understand why but mile three mile four that's when i feel my knee pain Hmm. and i haven't had a problem with my knee since 15 years ago when i had that little itty bitty meniscus surgery surgery went well no problems after that everything's good i have not had an injury event right so i really i'm not looking at this knee pain as an injury but why is it mile four for some reason my knee starts to hurt and that's kind of a common a common thing that I hear is stuff like that where it's not a physical it's not that you had an injury event but because your threat levels are becoming more elevated from faulty input coming in in this case it's coming back from the inner ear that's when the body starts to increase tension maybe breathing starts to become lousy maybe um you know your proprioception starts to change you know locally in that area where you had some problems a long time ago and all of a sudden we're back to disturbing that loop of input decision making output and so the vestibular system um, because balance is so important for our survival and falling is one of the biggest threats that we're up against as people when you see vestibular problems, even if they're not significant. Because actually what you hear a lot of the time is that, oh, you don't have to train your vestibular system unless you've had a head trauma or you have problems that are you know so significant that they have to be taken care of in a clinic. Unless you have that, you don't need to train your vestibular system. And that is not true. What we know now is that we can train our vestibular system the, tr- the same way that we train any part of our body. And even if you don't have a problem there, you can enhance the performance of your vestibular system, make that information coming in more accurate for your brain. And because it has such a profound influence on our whole body from uh, postural stability to balance, and um, helping us understand where we are in space it even helps to regulate some of our sympathetic reflexes and even our blood pressure right so it's just like a really really um amazing system that um has a big influence on our on our performance when you see those issues there or perhaps a person just doesn't have great competency there there may not be no problem but maybe they don't have excellent competency there and threat kicks in at some point when they're doing stuff 
that's when we see those balance problems take up the most space in the threat bucket because balance and falling is a big deal. Yeah, probably historically not great for people. So, yes. but like now, okay, this is awesome because you're talking about being proactive in terms of trying to mitigate these things, right? So yeah. now, now I got to know. Let's just get into some of those examples. I'm like, so what yeah. can we do to train that, if, especially if that's the thing that's going to take up the most space and, and keep the threats low? It sounds like yep. that, that this is a great place for just it's kind a of big like, one. yeah, most people just to kind of understand. But when, you know, you're thinking of balance training, um, it's not necessarily standing on a BOSU ball. Right. Correct. Like, yeah. And that's it. I think it's kind of like, or like whatever you're doing. Um, a lot of like yeah. single leg stuff. So like, what are, what are some ways to help train this and being proactive to keep kind of threat levels low? Yeah, that's great. So when it comes to training the vestibular system, um, here, here's a couple of, of examples that I feel like people could go and try on their own and get a sense for how it feels and, and, um, and how difficult it actually can be. So let's start with uh, with what's called a VOR. So um, we have a reflex, I, I briefly described it. It is the reflex that allows us to keep our eyes stable on a target while our head, neck, and body is in motion. That is called a vestibulo-ocular reflex. And that is probably the most common part of the vestibular system that you, that you hear about and that um, you see being trained. Here's how we train that. You're going to take a target, and that target could literally be your thumb. It could be a pen, whatever, whatever you have available. And you're just going to hold that target out in front of you at an arm's length. You're going to fixate your eyes on your target, and you're going to begin to move your head left and right, only about 30 degrees each direction, and your goal is to keep your eyes stable on the target. And you could also do that by moving your head up and down. So the idea is if this reflex is working properly, your eyes are able to maintain fixation on the target while your head is moving. And it doesn't have to be a big movement because if you make it a big movement, you end up um, only looking at your target for part of the range of motion with one of your eyes. Mm. And we want your um, both of your eyes to be coordinated at all times looking at this target. So we call it the yes, yes, no, no VOR. You're looking at the target and you're gesturing with your head either back and forth, yes, yes, or back and forth, no, no, okay? Um, so that's the first part, is kind of figuring out that coordination. And you'll be standing up as you do this and you'll be in good posture as you do this. And after you do that, you're gonna be like, wow, that was easy. And then I'm gonna tell you, now do it standing on one leg. And so then someone will stand on one leg, they look at their target at an arm's length away, they start moving their head back and forth, keeping their eyes stable on the target. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Balance is challenged, proprioception's challenged. Um, I'm feeling all these little micro adjustments happen through my foot, ankle, knee, hip, trunk, right? It actually gets quite difficult to maintain your balance as you do that, provided you're moving your head relatively fast. So mm. somebody who has good balance is gonna do that and they're gonna be like, all right, that was a little bit harder, cool. And then I'm gonna say, okay, you're, you're not convinced yet. Now let me start to take you into some of our speed standards. And so I'll take out my trusty metronome and I'll turn my metronome on at, uh, to start at 120 beats per minute. 
And so then you're looking at your target, you're standing on one leg, your eyes are stable on your target, you're moving your head back and forth, beep, 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 and your goal is to maintain your balance as you do it. And that's when you start to see great athletes fall over in two seconds. Hmm. And then they go, whoa, that was way harder than I thought. And I go, yeah, you don't have to stand on an unstable surface to train your balance. Actually, it's the opposite. If you want to train hmm. your vestibular system in relation to training your balance, you have to move your head, neck, and eyes. You see, there's a misconception in the industry right now. A lot of people do unstable surface training, but unstable surface training is more of a technique that is under the dominance of your proprioceptive system. Mm. So standing on either a foam cushion or a BOSU ball, whatever it may be, can be quite challenging. It can be hard to maintain your balance because proprioceptively you have to work really, really hard. But those unstable surfaces don't show up in our life that much. Right. right. You can make arguments like, oh, sure, you know, I'm on the beach. The sand's unstable. OK, you know, you, st you step on some some loose gravel when you're out running. Yeah, OK. But realistically, if I'm going to train my balance, I want to train with my stance or my foot or whatever on solid ground, because most of the time that's going to be where I'm performing. And I want to move my head, neck and eyes, which activates my vestibular system which is the thing that actually improves my balance. See, this is where it gets funny because if you think about what happens with unstable surface training, it's the opposite. It stabilizes your head. Your body's moving underneath you on the mm -hmm. unstable surface. And because of that, your brain goes, whoa, that's a proprioceptive challenge. I got to stabilize my head, neck, and eyes in one place. So you actually decrease the vestibular input, which is not helping you become better at balancing for real life sports and activities. So it's the opposite. Now, I used to like be like, oh, unstable surface training, you just don't want to do it. And, and now I've sort of, I've changed my viewpoint on that because it's not that I think it's harmful for you. So I don't want people to think, oh, I've been doing that for a long time. That's bad. It's not that it's harmful for you necessarily. It's that when you when you dive into the neuroanatomy of what we're actually trying to do to improve balance, it's not it's not helping. It's it's opposite. Right. right? You're training like because yeah. that's what people want, right? They're like, oh, I train my little muscles. You know, you hear that. Yeah. It's like the little muscles kind of grab and do this and that. But yeah, it, it, but that's not how it's going to work in the real world sure. where you're moving through any athletic thing, your head and neck, and it's yeah. all going to be moving. Those yeah, little muscles. And, and, yeah. And listen, like from a proprioceptive standpoint, doing some unstable surface training work may be useful, right? I know that that's a, that's a relatively common um, thing that you see happening in more like traditional rehab um, environments. And, and that's fine. But it's important for listeners to know that when it comes to actually targeting your balance system, the inner ear, you have to move your head, neck, and eyes. So we want to be, we want to be standing on a stable platform while we do that, and that's our VOR exercise. And um, I will have athletes go through those progressions and make them pretty challenging very quickly, so that they can feel, oh yeah, this is hard. I don't need to stand on an unstable surface to do this. 
So I started 120 beats per minute with that metronome, and you can actually work people up to 180, and I've even had um, some people get up to like 210, which is like beep, 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 back and forth, and it is really, really challenging to balance on one leg while you're moving your head that fast. It's a great training drill. And I was thinking like, yeah, like in terms of knowing if it is working, is that just the best way to kind of progress that? Like just the speed in which you're... So yeah, so a healthy individual is just going to be able to jump into some of those training progressions and just have at it looking for that adaptation like we discussed. Um, But you may find that you do have to regress it. Maybe you can't stand on one leg at first because you're not able to get, say... um, 10 reps in 10 seconds is generally what we're looking for as a uh, standard when you're moving your head. So that's that 120 beats per minute. And if you're not able to achieve that, that's fine. Everybody, most people start at a little bit um, lower down on that, on that metronome scale. So you just start where you feel comfortable. And with balance, you want to have mostly success. I want to make it hard enough so that you're you know, recovering your position, but you don't want to be falling out of position every three reps. Otherwise, it's not enough success to open up those doors for plasticity, for that adaptation mm. that we're looking. We're trying to get your your brain and your body to change, and we need enough success to do that, but we also need the errors. We need those mistakes to happen so that you're challenged enough to open up those doors to uh, long-term change. Yeah, it's like progressive overload, right? Like something yep. that's just a little it. bit harder than what you than what you uh, could do for yeah. an, an extensive amount of time. Yeah. Um, so um, the other piece of that, Rich, too, and this will just like be a really fast um, example for how to train your vestibular system. Mm-hmm. You can do some um, some eyes closed work. So you can stand in some challenging positions, whether it's feet together narrow stance, whether it's one foot in front of the other tandem stance. Maybe it's standing on one leg. Maybe it's standing in a sports-specific position. Mm. Once you're in the position, in the stance, close your eyes. Then start to move your head. Hmm. Once you remove the visual system from the drill, all of a sudden it's even harder to balance. So this is more targeted towards our inner ear, training the inner ear as we move our head, but also the proprioceptive system because our proprioceptive system has to really do a good job at feeling things while our head and our neck is is moving okay so like looking at this like zoomed out then and how this all kind of like ties together and just not necessarily sum it up but just kind of like the idea and what i'm taking from this is like when you're thinking about your threat bucket the vestibular system is going to take up a lot of it right and when that gets to when that threat bucket gets too full your performance will decrease you might get injured so improving the vestibular system through drills like um like we just went over that will ultimately reduce the threat levels because your body and your brain know your brain knows that like it's good at not falling over right so like if if you can eliminate that threat ideally you'll perform better uh, be a little less stressed and, and maybe be have more success at staying healthy long term. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. And remember, everything is about prediction. We we're we're training like this. We're we're training these inputs. We're training the decision making process to create a healthier, better output. And we're doing that so that we can become better at predicting the environment. That's that really is where it comes. It really comes back to that 
Um, it, to get to go a little bit deeper, it's about pattern recognition and recognizing things in the world and our brain recognizing, um, you know, different inputs coming in. And when we when we start to become better at predicting our environment, that's when we start to see threat levels go down and performance go up. And, and you know, we all have seen what it looks like when a when an athlete is uh, moving very well with low levels of threat, right? The best athletes in the world make difficult things look easy. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're not carrying a lot of tension in their body. And they've developed a great tolerance for all of these different threat loads that they know we're going, they know they're going to encounter, right? It's, it's normal to encounter these levels of threat. The question is, does it exceed what you're able to handle? So in that process of inoculating and reintroducing threats and creating the adaptation that we discussed, the outcome of that is you built yourself a bigger threat bucket. You're able to handle more. So, yeah, okay. So when, oftentimes I feel like the, the approach that might be a little bit more in our face, a little bit more commercialized is going to be strength oriented, right? It's going to be like, okay, yeah. to improve this injured area, you know, whether it's from like a, a trainer or a PT or whatever, to improve this injured area, we have to uh, strengthen this injured area where yeah. y you're kind of like, this approach is just reducing threats all around. And ideally that would also kind of create a, uh, you know, more stable, healthy environment. So how, how do you help people kind of like bridge that gap between where their full like amount of stress level is and, and maybe move them away from strengthening one specific spot or like adding things on top of things that already needed to be added. Cause I feel like this is where you might meet like some pushback or there is sure. just some apprehension to, to trust this thing. It's like, well, if my, if my knee hurts and it's because I have tight quads, like I gotta, I have to address the tight quads where right. you're saying it's like, you need to address the, the global threats that you're facing. Right. So like, how do you help people get through that? Yeah. So it's, it's always a journey, right? And, and it starts with education, right? I spend a lot of time talking to people at first teaching them about neuro 101 and the input decision making output loop teaching them about the threat bucket teaching them these concepts because once it's broken down it's very relatable everybody generally understands stress and that too much stress has a negative outcome so for me the first thing is education and if i don't provide that education at first i generally lose somebody really quickly mm-hmm the second part of that process, and this is really the paradigm shift. It was for me years ago, and it is for everybody that I work with who really decides to engage the process. You have to assess it, and you have to have this real-time experience where you feel your threat levels change. You feel improved performance in the moment, and you basically take the brakes off your nervous system so that you can do something better, not 12 weeks from now, but today. And that is, that is the power of harnessing the nervous system 
and understanding that you can assess these things. And when you assess them, it's like you're asking a question to the brain. How do you feel about this input? Is it safe? Is it useful? And there's always an immediate output. And so the way that we assess these things, and people are able to do this, like you'll be able to go and people will be able to go and try this if they want. It always starts with a really simple um, assessment process. We generally use range of motion to get people started. So for example, usually I'll have people test their forward bend, right? Their forward fold, you know, or put their hands together, stick them out in front of them like they're having imaginary pistol in their hands, feet stay neutral, rotate right, rotate left, and get an idea for what's your range of motion, how do you feel making the, the trunk rotation, do you have any limiting factors, right? Um, sometimes we'll do shoulder range of motion, flexion, extension, whatever it may be. And you can test any range of motion that you want or any, let's call it like a functional movement that you want. That could be a squat, that could be a lunge, that could be a strength-based movement, pull-up, push-up, whatever. Just some kind of assessment, um, even balance. And you have to get your baseline. And then you immediately go and you perform an exercise or a drill. And you usually have to do maybe two to, it's usually only two or three reps of that exercise. And then you immediately go and retest. Hmm. Immediately. And you will get the outcome of how your brain is perceiving that particular input. Because remember, we talked about at the beginning, everything comes back to, does your brain feel safe? Right? How does it feel about this particular input? The input that you're giving it is the exercise you're practicing. So what you'll see is oftentimes you do the right drill, range of motion increases. And when I say increases, what I mean is when your nervous system feels happy about something, when, you get a, when, when there's an input, an exercise that is healthy for you, that result echoes through your whole body. Right, So we might do something with your eyes, or we might do something with your vestibular system, or we might do something with your proprioceptive system and retest it immediately. And if it's a good input that's perceived as useful and, um, and not threatening, those ranges of motion will improve instantly. Hmm. Sometimes drastically, I mean, almost every week that I'm on a call with a client, there is a moment where, where the two of us are laughing because something improved so much and we can't explain why. <laughs> it just it's, it happens constantly. It's like, okay, I guess that was the right idea. And maybe that was a vestibular drill that often happens. So here's, this is for the athletes out there. Normally athletes still don't believe me. So, so we do a, we do a drill and they're forward bend. They haven't been able to touch their toes and however long, and they all of a sudden can touch their toes and they're like, no, it's just cause I'm warmed up. I'm like, okay, so let's just keep going and I'll try to give you more of these experiences and, uh, and maybe you'll believe me. And then all of a sudden we choose the wrong input, do the wrong drill. Something about that drill is threatening and they get way worse. And now they look at me and they're like, why did that happen? I don't like that. What, what, what just is, what's going on here? 
that's usually when I capture the attention of athletes is when I make them worse. Mm-hmm. So, so this is how the training process goes when we're running these assessments and it starts with range of motion and you can test the things that you like, right? You don't have to do the things that I'm talking about. If you're not super familiar with vision training and vestibular training, right? You can do the things you like, go foam roll your right quad, assess first, foam roll your right quad, reassess immediately after better, same, worse. What happened? Right? Go um, perform your favorite ankle mobility drill. Assess first. Perform the drill. Retest after. What happened? And you start to go through this and, and learn how your nervous system is perceiving the exercises. Let me tell you, sometimes it's very humbling. This thing that you've been doing for years that you thought was healthy, is you, you discover is not actually giving you the result that you want. Mm-hmm. And that happens all the time. And so people sort of at first get frustrated by that, but then it's like, whoa, no, this is very empowering. So now I can actually test these different things that I'm doing. And when the result is good, I can harness that. And we call it creating your own high payoff toolbox. And you can start calling on those drills that help you move better and feel better when you need them or as part of your recovery, whatever it may be, that's going to help you dismantle your threat levels. And at the same time, remember, you're removing threats, right? Because maybe that ankle mobility drill that you've been doing for a couple years isn't helping you and your body is tensing up and threat levels are going up. Now you know that and you can just put that one aside for now. And so you're just calling on those high payoff tools because you're assessing them and you know, you know what's helping you the most. And this is something I did want to to pick your brain about, and it's something that I bump up against on my own when I've, in the past anyway, when I was always trying to find the next thing that's going to help my recovery or, you know, this tool versus that tool or hearing yeah. about different ways to rehab or prehab and, um, and just the ways that, like the one that I've been talking to some different athletes about recently is like Achilles tendonitis, right? It's like, Some people did X, Y, Z, you know, eccentric lowers. Other people did soft tissue work. Some people, whatever. And and they're getting completely different results. And it's frustrating for the athletes to like talk to the friends and try the things that the friends are trying and it's not working. And it's frustrating for someone like me. It's just like, like, I'm not sure, like try all of the stuff and, and, but it's not really, we don't really know. So it's just kind of like throwing darts. So like, this is this is kind of how that works is kind of what you're talking about right deciding what is working exactly yes and so um and that's that's really what my entire focus is on is helping people understand how to make more informed decisions about the things that they're doing with their health and performance and you you have to assess those things to know how your body's responding so once again we can do a before assessment and then reassess and find out. Now, it's so common to hear, like what you described, somebody tries a specific technique and it works great for them. They tell their friend, their friend tries it. No result or negative result. Mm-hmm. There are neurologic reasons why. And, and that's why I find neurology, neuroscience to be so cool is because it, it helps us understand why a person would respond differently to any given input. So when you understand how the nervous system works, 
it removes the argument for which modality or therapy or technique or exercise is the best one because all of those things exist for a reason we have a mm -hmm. nervous system right we have a nervous system and brain that senses stuff takes in information from the outside world and when you're trying these different techniques they all have one thing in common and and that is that when you when you perform say a, a soft tissue type of technique right whether you, whatever gadget you want to use on your body whether it's a uh, some sort of cold or warm or uh, vibratory or electrical stimulation, right? It's activating receptors. Those are nerve fibers. And we have lots of different kinds of receptors and different stimulus activate different receptors. So you mentioned some sort of eccentric heel drop for an Achilles thing. Right. Well, eccentric loading targets a specific receptor right and and some people might say no eccentric loading was terrible for me not only did i feel pain doing it the next day no good and they're like i do calf raises well concentric concentric part of the range of motion different fiber type different receptors and then someone else says I did both of those things. They worked terrible for me. Isolating the problem was awful. My therapist put kinesio tape on my soleus and I was a million bucks. I could run awesome that day. And after then the next day I felt great. Well, kinesio tape, different set of receptors. So we can go through this whole list of tools and approaches and techniques and the one thing they have in common is that they activate your brain but they do it through specific receptor types so there's no more argument for this is the best technique because it really depends on what a person needs so here's the cool thing you don't need to know neurology to take advantage of this concept all you have to know is that you have to test what you're doing Remember today we talked about range of motion. That could also be strength. That could also be balance. That could be a functional movement. Test, perform the drill or the technique, retest. So if I'm doing, um, what's, an, what's, a, what's a common one? Like uh, muscle floss bands, right? Yeah, Where you like wrap your one, joints, voodoo floss, floss. The scraper. Cups, scrapers, so yeah. many different um, scraping tools. The, the vibration guns are really um, popular right now. Um, kinesio tape, any kind of trigger pointing tool. Gosh, the list goes on, right? Yeah. Assess, apply the stimulus, reassess what happened. Did your range of motion improve? Did your balance improve? Did your strength improve? Do you feel better? Are you walking better? Right. If the answer is yes, that is a good stimulus for you. If the answer is no, you need to listen to that. Because if you just take the advice of some resource that says, oh, cupping is the best. It will solve all these Achilles problems. 
and you keep applying that stimulus over and over and over again, but for, for some reason your brain is finding that threatening, it might go wrong for you or you might just not get the result that your friend got. You're wasting time. Right. Yeah, seriously. Huh. So this is... And so will this... So say like had Achilles tendonitis two years ago. Yeah. Did muscle scraping, worked great, knocked it out. Yeah. And, and in the present, same thing, went back, did scraping, didn't work this time. <laughs> it, it, is that possible too? Because I feel like that's something that people, well, I'll speak for myself. It's like, all right, when this happens, do this. And it, it works sometimes, but when it doesn't work, then I'm like, yeah, oh no, like it didn't work yes. this time. <clears throat> yeah, well listen, you know, as human beings, we're constantly changing, we're constantly adapting. Our threat levels are constantly different depending on where we are in our life. What are our training loads like? I mean, the list goes on, right? Think about that threat bucket. It's, right. We're just constantly changing. So um, yes, that's a really important point to make. Just because something was the correct stimulus for you at one point in your life doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get that same result later on. And at first, that's like, oh no. But for me, it's freeing and comforting because I just test it. Right. And if the answer is no, I move on to something else. And I just keep building that high payoff toolbox and it's a huge advantage. It's a huge advantage. So I mean it's it's definitely happens. And then other times you will find that something is so high payoff for you, you can go back to it over and over and over again. Your body and your brain love it and it stays in that high payoff toolbox. Fingers crossed you find it right away and just knocks yes. it all out. Because that's the thing, yeah. right? It's like having and that's when these products get sold that may have worked for the founder right. of the company or whatever and they're right. pitching it as this cure-all and it's yes. just not so like right be weary right. of these products yes yeah you know. and and yeah and and test them and also realize that like and this is this is what's cool to, for me working with people is a, i'm such a minimalist now in knowing this stuff like People are like, should I buy the three hundred and fifty dollar <laughs> vibration thing? And I was, and I'm like, depends. Do you have an electric toothbrush? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, let me go get it. And then we we do some work with vibration coming from an electric toothbrush. We get the same response that we're hoping for. And you know, you don't necessarily need to go and buy the the latest and greatest expensive tool so once you start sort of understanding that we're only talking about a stimulus right and and a stimulus can be um input coming from stuff that we already own or we can find in our house i have so many funny stories of of helping people with with different uh different you know injuries and pain and it's like especially on zoom calls now because you know i used to do so much one-on-one -on -one with people in person and now that zoom is really the um where i'm doing this work it's like hey um you know get up get me a butter knife um grab your resistance band we'll need a paper towel and uh do you happen to have a sewing needle and uh, no joke like this is common and we're doing sensory work using these different household things, you know, sewing needle, sharp stimulus, paper towel, light touch on the skin, um, butter knife as for 
tapping um, our tendons for deep tendon reflexes. It's just like, it's funny how it works, but you know, if you love your, if you love your expensive tools, have at it, but I'm just a minimalist guy. And it's just, when you know neurology, it's so fun to be able to just use whatever you want. That's hilarious. Like being able to figure out what those tools, those expensive tools are doing just by yeah. like introducing it. You'd be a terrible brand ambassador. Nobody terrible. wants, nobody oh, would yeah, want yeah, you yeah, to. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, seriously. So along those lines, like, I mean, I'm sure we can go on and on in terms of like what, like how to, like the, the drill you gave us for vestibular thing is awesome, right? And I'm sure we could go yeah. down that hole over and over, but you did just kind of create a product because before you had a couple things available that was like more on the proprioceptive side with some mobility. And then it was more like yep. the, the high end one-on-one coaching thing, but you kind of came yeah. in, you kind of just developed something that was like right in the middle, right. To help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Neuro so tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Um, so that's a, that's a product that, um, that we just recently released. It's called neuro creatives. And actually this, there's a little story behind it for three years, my wife and I, um, uh, my wife Alicia, she she co-owns our our company Cruise Elite, and um, the two of us had an educational membership for the last three years. And in the inside that educational membership, we shared information on all the stuff that we've discussed today: how to train the nervous system, how to understand the nervous system better. There's you know exercise tutorials, stuff like that. And over the course of three years, we ended up with about 200 educational lessons. Well, as our, that particular membership was more concept based. So rather than like, here's what to do. Mm -hmm. And so as, as we changed and our business changed, eventually we got to a point where we're like, you know what? I mean, the membership's been awesome. We want to shift gears a little bit and start figuring out how to make this stuff even more applicable for people who, who aren't going to necessarily have the time or even the desire to um, invest in all this education you can do on the nervous system. But we still want to be able to give them these tools in a way that's going to work for them and in a way where it's going to fit into their life. So we canceled our membership and, um, and started building some new stuff. And so one of those things is uh, NeuroCreatives, which is actually information and lessons from the membership that we had previously and we sort of put it into this like i don't know sort of fundamental and accelerated version of our membership so instead of you know 200 educational lessons there's there's uh, less lessons but more information on what we talked about today where you learn about neuro 101 and the neural hierarchy and what does it mean when we say train your proprioceptive system, your vestibular system, your visual system? So we're trying to really bridge people into that. Um, and NeuroCreatives is, is how we're doing that. So it's like a stepping stone program um, into the neuro talk, but without going into the rabbit hole, which I feel is so important for people because I want to be able to give them drill ideas and also provide them with that foundational education, the threat bucket, all that stuff. Um, so that they can begin to understand their body better and and also walk away with some cool exercises to try. So that's that's neurocreatives. Cool. So um, if like someone's yeah. listening to this and and they're like, yeah, I, I want to know some more of these drills and like kind of explore yeah. deep that that would be. For yeah. This so 
Exactly. So the, the educational lessons are actually based around um, what we call our six essential qualities of, uh, of movement. We've got balance, coordination, mobility, stamina, speed, and strength. And in addition to that, sort of the other lens that we're looking through is the neural hierarchy. So you go inside that, that program and you get, um, there's exercises for the visual system laid out, exercises for the proprioceptive system laid out, exercises for the vestibular system laid out, and then they're all kind of based around those six qualities, which is kind of cool. So it's like another lens to look through, and that's really like the two things like coming together is I feel really, really useful for people because they already kind of understand the qualities. It's like how do we look at those qualities and then start to understand the neural hierarchy? Got it. Cool. Yeah. Cause I think like the application of this is where, you know, people might need a little bit more Definitely. like the understanding of course, but then once they start to do it and feel it, it's like, Oh, I get it. Yeah. Like, this is, yeah. And you, the assessment processes are in there too. Some of the stuff we described today where you learn how to test your range of motion, test your balance. Those are, uh, those are two of the protocols that we teach people inside that program so that they can move through the program and test some of this stuff and get that experience of, Oh, if I just start assessing what I'm doing, I assess, that asks the question, that asks my brain, is this safe? Is it useful? And then my outcome when I retest is going to tell me uh, the answer to that. So that's uh, that's a part of that program. Cool, that's great. Yeah, yeah I'll make sure to link to link to all that in the uh, cool. show notes below and, and give a blast. So where can people uh, find you um, other than at the NeuroCreatives? So um, we're most, as far as social media goes, we're most active on, uh, on Instagram. So at Cruise Elite and then uh, our website, cruiseelite.com. Cool. Well, this is awesome, man. As usual, my, my brain has exploded, you know, really thinking nice. about like the bigger picture of things. So awesome info and I really appreciate it. So um, that'll kind of wrap us up, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll talk to you guys soon.